Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Good morning. How are you all? Are you well? I discovered um, my, my car has an interesting feature that I didn't know it had, uh, I found out this morning. A heater. <laughs> it's wonderful. Managed to actually put that to good use this morning. It was, it was great. Uh, now, look, quick, just a, a quick um, public service announcement before we um, get into things this morning. Uh, I was made aware on Friday that uh, an email has been circulating that purportedly has come from me uh, asking for some urgent help. Um, and so, you know, please reply to the email, that kind of stuff. Uh, can I just highlight it did not come from me. It's someone impersonating me. It is a scam. Um, and so if you just check, um, first of all, we'll always have the email footers on there from Mitcham Baptist Church. Um, but if you just check the email address... It will always be the at mitchumbaptist.org.au email address, okay? This is not coming from that. So if you do get that email, please just delete it. It's not from me. Um, and just ignore it, and we will just carry on with life as it is. I do feel a little honoured that it only took three weeks for someone to try to impersonate me, though, as well. So, <laughs> hey, it's good fun. It's good fun. But let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into things this morning. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your holy scriptures your recorded revelation of you and your creation and the story that you have written, you are writing and you continue to write with us, for us, in us and through us. And as we open up your word this morning, Lord, I pray, would you give us ears to hear what you're saying? Give us eyes to see what you're doing and hearts willing to join you in the story you are writing, so that the hope and life and love of Jesus can be proclaimed right around Mitcham, all throughout Melbourne, and to the outer ends of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yesterday morning, we, Sarah and I, had the incredible privilege of sneaking into the seniors' brunch. It must be the grey hairs in the beard or something, but we were able to sneak our way in there. And can I just say, it was an absolutely fantastic morning. I did not eat again until much later that night. The amount of food was just amazing. And you'll get a taste of some of that this morning uh, for morning tea. But it was just so wonderful to be able to sit and chat and hear people's stories and, and get to know a few more uh, of the, the Mitcham Baptist family. And it absolutely confirmed our strong suspicion that this church community is filled with some pretty remarkable people. You know, if you are new here, then I have no doubt that you will find very quickly a wonderful sense of hospitality and generosity and community in and through the people of this church. And it gave us an incredible sense of uh, confidence and encouragement that we just feel so privileged that God would see fit to write us into the story of Mitcham Baptist Church. It is such a privilege for us to be part of what God is doing uh, and already with you all and through you all. And, and we get to now just come on that journey with you. It's a wonderful thing as God writes the story. And that's what we're, we're looking at at the moment. What is the overarching story that the Bible tells from cover to cover? Last week, we unpacked uh, the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1, where, where God 
begins to create everything. And in those verses, we see God being presented to us as the king. He's the king who creates by speaking. He's the king who names everything. And he's the king who sets the boundaries for the flourishing of life. And because he's the king, the story is his. It's his story. We find our place in his story as we learn to be obedient to his leading. Now, that can look a range of different ways for different people. But I thought what I'd do just by way of introduction this morning is to give you a little bit of insight into what that's looked like for us in our lives over the past few years. I know some of you have been asking some questions about Karatha and that kind of thing, so I thought I'd give you a little bit of an overview of our time uh, in Karatha, a thousand foot view of those things. Um, so before we lobbed up in Melbourne, we, we were living uh, in a, a place called Karatha in the northwest of WA. Uh, it's about 1,500 kilometres north of Perth in the Pilbara region. It's a mining town um, and it is a wonderful place. But the thing you should know about me is I don't do heat well. I, I sweat in a snowstorm and Karatha is hot. And it's on the coast, so it's humid as well. Well, that's just like a double whammy in my books. In fact, our first summer up there, we actually uh, ended up turning off the hot water system because the water coming out of the cold tap was hot enough to wash the dishes. I kid you not. The water coming out of the cold, uh, out of the hot, because the pipes are slightly insulated, was cooler than the water coming out of the cold taps. It was just, get your head around that. You can't. It's, it's horrible. So I don't do the hot. I grew up in Perth, and, and I've always had this sense that Perth felt a bit too small for me. I love, I love big cities. I love the hustle and, and, the, and the bustle. And I always have been a part of teams when it comes to ministry. I never wanted to be a sole pastor. Karatha is hot, small, about 20,000 people. And for the first four years of our ministry out there, I was the sole pastor. Three strikes, Right? strikes. So why on earth did we move there? Why did we go to Karatha and be part of Karatha Baptist Church? Well, it was because we had a strong, strong sense that God was inviting us into the story he was writing in the northwest of WA. In fact, I said to God before we moved up there, sillily, sillily? It was silly of me to say that. I said to God, I'll give you three years, God, not a second longer. And after three years, you need to move us somewhere else. That's how excited I was to go to Karatha. God said, sure, we'll talk about that later, which we did. Six years later, eventually we, we finally moved after six years. God is writing his story. Can I tell you, he is growing his kingdom in the northwest of WA, and in his providence, he saw fit to use us up there. And can I tell you, church, we saw the kingdom flourish. We saw the kingdom flourish in, in a number of different ways over those six years. Yeah, it was tough at times. Yeah, it was beautiful at times and everywhere in between. But, you know, we saw people come to faith. We saw a number of prodigals return to faith. We had the privilege of baptizing somewhere in the vicinity of about 70 people over six years. For a country church, that's pretty decent. 
We saw people set free from oppression and addictions. We saw God do miracles and, and, and heal people from physical ailments. He did incredible things in the Northwest. And the church in Karatha is thriving. The kingdom of God expands and extends to the outer reaches of the earth. And I don't tell you that to inflate our ego or you know, make us look good or anything like that. All the glory goes to God and God alone. But I tell you that simply to say, when we join God in his story, the story he writes, the things he does, is far beyond what we could expect or imagine. We have a key role to play in the story of God. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. What's our role in God's story? Why did God create us? We're diving back into Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Uh, and just for the sake of time, we're going to pick it up in verse 26, which is about halfway through day 6 of creation. So God's created the world. He's populated everything with all sorts of creatures. And then he goes on to describe making our favorite thing. Us. Right? We like to think of ourselves, don't we, as the pinnacle of creation, the most important thing God created, right? We like to think of ourselves that way. Some of you are looking like, well, I thought I was supposed to think that way. You are, because it's true. It's right. And it's true in a, in a, in a very significant way. And there's a number of clues in the verses we're looking at this morning that point to the fact that this is true. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. The rest of the creation story, it, it, it's poetic, but it's kind of almost recorded with this matter-of-fact kind of nature about it. But when it comes to creating humanity, God indicates that this is special. So as we read these verses, see if you can spot how God indicates that. Let's see if this works. Ah, praise the Lord. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, there's three things in these verses that show us the unique and special place that humans have in God's creation. Firstly, God repeats multiple times the fact that he created us. Verse 27 it says it three times there. It says, God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And Bible study 101, when something is repeated, it's done intentionally to draw our attention to that thing. And so the multiple repetition that the rest of creation doesn't get shows us that humanity being created is something special. It's something unique amongst creation. Secondly, God uses some pretty interesting language to introduce the creation of humanity, doesn't he? He doesn't use it elsewhere. He says in verse 26, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. 
And that plural language there, it should strike us as a little bit odd. The first time we see it, and all the way through, it's God has been talked about in, in almost this kind of the singular sense. But here we get this plural language. And I know the typical way we, we understand this, the way we describe this, is that it's an early indication of the doctrine of the Trinity. right? The, one God in three parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I absolutely believe that. I absolutely, with everything I have and all that I am, believe in the Trinity, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to say that that's a wrong interpretation. But I do think there's more going on here that we don't necessarily tap into. I think what we're also seeing in this verse, in this plural language, is an example of what we call the majestic plural. The majestic plural. In, in the ancient world, kings would often speak of themselves in the third person. Uh, and, and they would do this especially when they were making a significant declaration about the kingdom that they ruled over, that they reigned over. And this was only ever used for very significant, important declarations. Like, no king was ever going to say, let us go to McDonald's or, or let us go and have a, a snack or anything like that. No, it was only ever used with really significant things. Let us make a decree. Let us enforce a, a new tax or whatever it might be. Significant declarations that were closely connected to the kingdom itself. And if we carry on the motif of God as king through these verses, which I, I think we're supposed to actually do, then this absolutely could be an early indication of the Trinity. And it could also be a declaration that what God is about to say next is really significant and somehow indivisibly linked to his kingdom. And the significant thing that God says next is that he calls us his image and his likeness. And this is what I want to focus in on for the rest of our time this morning. Because if we're going to find our place in God's story, then it's really important that we grapple with what this actually means. Because over the years, this has been presented in a number of different ways that I don't think pays full attention and gives us a full understanding to the impact of what this statement encompasses. We've attached language to it over the years that, that makes us feel more comfortable, but doesn't necessarily give us the complete picture. And we do that all the time with a whole bunch of different things, don't we? We, we? we find a way to tell a story, to understand something with language that we feel comfortable with, but doesn't necessarily give the complete picture about what that thing is about. Let me give an example of that. Uh, one of my favourite hobbies uh, that I, I really enjoy engaging with is smoking meat. Okay, I love smoking meat. You know, low and slow, American-style barbecue, that kind of a thing. Uh, and a few years ago, back in Karatha, I entered a barbecue competition, pork ribs. Love me a nice rack of pork ribs. Some good sweet baby raised barbecue sauce on top there and let it cook for hours and hours till it's soft and tender. And so I entered this pork ribs competition. I was a part of the, the barbecue club up there. And uh, it was a great fun day. We got our smokers, we took them down to a local park and we spent all day cooking and talking and hanging out and joking. And we had an incredible feast that evening for dinner. There was just more meat than 
is healthy. It was a fantastic, wonderful day. And to top it off, when it came to the competition, I finished equal second. I know, right? My pork ribs were voted the equal second best pork ribs in that competition, which sounds really impressive, doesn't it? Until I tell you there were only three people who entered. (laughs) So not only did I come equal second, I also came equal last as well. But I will tell you, I came second. And it's not wrong. And I'm a lot more comfortable telling you I came second, right? But it also doesn't give the full picture of what's going on, does it? And I think what we've done with our language when it comes to the image and likeness of God, we've done something similar, where we use language that doesn't necessarily give the full picture of it. And so what does it mean to be made in the image, in the likeness of God? Great question. Thanks for asking. Quick side note. The, the, the words image and likeness in, in this context, that they basically mean the same thing. Um, it, it's another literary technique that the authors would use where they'd say something and then they'd say it again in a slightly different way to kind of try and give us a, a full understanding and a, and a focus on it. And so it essentially means the same thing. But, but over the years, there's been a few options that have been presented as to what being made in the image of God means. And for some people, the image of God refers to something that we have, something we possess, uh, some kind of characteristics that we possess that make us like God, similar to God, whether that's rationality, our ability to reason, uh, emotions, our capacity to have and display emotions, morality, knowing right from wrong, the ability to have relationships and be in community, that there's something that we have that other creatures don't that make us look like God. Now, there's a couple of problems with that, though. The first problem is that there are other creatures who display these sorts of characteristics. Now, any good David Attenborough nature documentary will show animals who have a sense of rationality, who, who learn things and develop, who, who work in relationship and in community and a, a sense of hierarchy, who display emotions. We have a dog and every time we come home and that dog has been in the bin again and buried stinky rubbish under our pillow again, she shows what I would consider a, a huge degree of guilt. Her head goes down, her tail comes between her legs. There's a sense of remorse there. When we come home, she hasn't been in the bin. She's excited. She's passionate to see us. There's that sense of love and emotion of unconditional love that only a dog can give, not cats, that she describes and she shows. So animals have these characteristics that we also display. But maybe it's the case of, you know, the difference is they don't do it to the same level that, that we do it. Maybe it's a quantity thing. We have these characteristics in greater quantity than, than what the animals do, what cre- the rest of creation has. But, but again, the, the problem there is that some people display these characteristics in greater quantity than others, don't they? I mean, many of you are, are way smarter than me, far more compassionate than I am. And, and so does that mean that you're more the image of God th- than me, than I am? 
I don't think any of us would feel comfortable suggesting that someone is more the image of God than, than someone else, would we? At least I hope we're not, because that's not a biblical standard. And when the world has done that in the past, it has led to huge amounts of atrocity. And so the image of God is, is not just about something we have. And nor is it just about something we do either. You know, whether it's ruling and reigning over creation like God says we do, or, or advocating for the outcast like God says we, we should or whatever. Because again, the same problem applies here. Some people do these things in greater quantity than others, don't they? And so if it's not about something we have, if it's not about something we do, what is it? What does it mean to be the image of God? I think the clue here is found in the Hebrew meaning of the word image. Now, you don't have to remember this, but it will make you look really smart at the next dinner party. In the Hebrew, it's the word salem. And it's actually a pretty common word that we find through the Old Testament. But when it's used in other places, it's not always translated as image. It's translated in different ways. Let me give you an example of that. In 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 18, one of these words is the word salem. It says, all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and the idols to pieces. Now, it goes on, but I've shortened the verse just to help you out a little bit here. Let's take a straw poll. Which is the word salem in this verse? Who thinks it's the word people? No one. Oh, one, yeah, okay, one, one. It's a good guess. Not right. Sorry. Who thinks it's the word temple? There's a few hands there, a few hands there. Also not right. It's the word idol. That word idol is the word salem, image. Which is weird, right? God picks the same word to describe us that in other places means idol. And so we're made as God's idol. Which doesn't feel right to say, does it? Because when we think of idols, we, we think of statues, uh, you know, that little statues or whatever that people would, would create, they would build and, and they would bow down and, and worship. Especially in Old Testament stories, we see uh, other people groups and even the, the, the Israelites making the golden calf. They make a little statue that they would bow down and worship that statue. But there's a, a, a very subtle yet significantly important difference that we need to acknowledge, which is that people weren't necessarily worshipping the statue, they were worshipping the thing represented by the statue. It's subtle, but it's a really important uh, difference. The, the, the statue, the idol, was a physical representation of a god or, or a spirit that becomes a focal point for the worship of that spirit. And on top of that, when people would make an idol, they were hoping that the spirit they were worshipping would exhibit itself, would, would manifest itself and its power through that idol. They believed the physical thing would become a conduit through which the power of that spirit would be made known in the world. And so a, a, a salem, an idol, was a physical representation of their God that they hoped would become the way that God would make its presence known in the world. You can see where I'm going with this, right? 
Yahweh, the one true God, says you are his Belen. We're the image of God, which means that we are made to be the physical representation of God in his creation and the means by which his presence and power is expressed in the world. And so God's image is not something we have. It's not something we do. It's something we are. We are God's physical representation in the world and the conduit through which his power and presence are made known. That's the place we have. That's the role we play in his story. God created and crafted us so that he could pour out his presence and power into creation through us. And it's so important that we grasp this concept because it appropriately positions us in the story that God is writing. We are conduits of God's power and presence to the world around us. That's an epic role to play. And no other aspect of creation gets that responsibility, gets that privilege. Not even the angels. Now, there's good news and there's bad news that comes with this. The good news is that you matter. You matter. You're his image. It's who you are. It's what you are. You matter in ways that you can't even imagine. And more than that, how much you matter has absolutely nothing to do with your performance. Your value doesn't go up and down based on, on what you do because it's who you are. It's what God made you to be. You are the image of God. And I know for, for some of us, there's a struggle with that, isn't there? It's uncomfortable. And, and I think we've, we've used all sorts of language to talk about this over the years that has only, I think, had the effect of diminishing what this concept in, entails. I mean, how many of you have heard over the years that, that humans reflect the image of God? That we bear the image of God? The problem with that is it's just not accurate. We don't find in Scripture anywhere that says that you have, you hold you carry, you reflect, you bear the image of God. What Scripture says is we are the image of God. And I know Genesis chapter 1 here says that we are made in God's image, and that sort of suggests a, a point of separation and a line of demarcation there. But to be honest with you, I, I actually agree with a number of scholars in this point where I, I struggle with this uh, translation because that preposition in, in Genesis 1.26, is often translated elsewhere as as. In which case, God is saying, we are made as his image. And I think that makes better sense of the context of Genesis chapter 1. We don't have or hold or carry or reflect or bear God's image. It's what you are. You are inherently, inestimably valuable because you are the image of God. That's the good news. The bad news is that if it's true of you, which it is, 
then it's also true of everyone else as well. Which means when we treat people like they don't count, when we lack you know, kindness or, or grace or mercy, when, when we're selfish, seeking to, to gain rather than serve, we're doing that to people who are of inestimable value and we're treating them as if they're not. And I'll be the first to put my hand up to say I do that multiple times every day. I mean, I, I like to think I treat Sarah fairly well, um, but there are times when I don't treat her as with the inestimable value that she has as someone made as the image of God. There are times when I'm driving on the road and Melbourne people love their horn. And I sit at the traffic lights and if I haven't moved on the arrow in half a second, I'm getting beeped. And in those moments, I'm not necessarily treating the person behind me with the sort of value they have as the image of God. Just being honest. I do this multiple times a day. But the fact of the matter is that you have never interacted with someone who is not inestimably valuable in God's eyes. And that's not to pour any guilt or shame on you, but just to remind us of the value that every person has made as the image of God. Church, we are the image of God. And the invitation he gives us into his story is to be his physical representation in the world and the conduit through which his presence and power is made known. And that is a pretty epic role we have. We'll unpack more of what that looks like in a couple of weeks' time. But, but for now, suffice to say, as the pinnacle of his creation, you and I have a significant role to play in the story that God has written, he is writing, and he will continue to write until Jesus returns and makes all things new. What an amazing privilege we have to find ourselves in the story of God, hey? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Two quick questions for you to ponder this week. Here's your homework. You ready? Question number one. Are you okay with being the image of God? Are you comfortable with that idea? Being made as his image. If you're not, can I encourage you just to, to sit with that? To wrestle with it? To ask why? Use it as a, a reflection piece in prayer? Ask God? Why ask others? Why don't I feel comfortable with that? Because this is something we have to wrestle with and reconcile if we're going to find our place in God's story. Are you comfortable with being the image of God? Second question from there. Is there anyone else that you struggle to see in this light? Is there anyone else you struggle with to see made as the image of God? It's a hard question, isn't it? Any person, any people that come to mind who maybe in, in your estimate don't or shouldn't qualify for this. And if so, the challenge here is to do whatever's needed to shift that view. Maybe there's some conversations you need to have this week, some forgiveness that needs to be asked for or, or, or sought perhaps. I don't know, but whatever it is, my prayer is that we'd have the courage to go after those, those things. And that God would give us the gift of seeing others as he sees them, in the same way he sees ourselves. 
because we're all his image. We're all equally made and loved by God. Fact is, Jesus died for us all. It's his death and resurrection that makes salvation available to anyone who would say yes to Jesus as Lord. And we have the incredible privilege as the image of God to be the conduits through which the power of his salvation can be offered to those, even those we struggle with. May God's power, may his presence be made known in the world, in ourselves, and through us as the conduits of his image. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a huge concept to wrestle with, that we are made as your image. And that it's through us that you make yourself known in this world. That we are your body. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the head. That you're the one in whom we find our life and our source of being. And that you are the one who grows your kingdom. And that you write us into your story. And it's just our incredible privilege to find our place in the story you're writing. And so I pray this morning for all of us, Lord, would you give us a fresh understanding, new insights, new revelation of what it means to be made as the image of God, to be your image. Nothing about what we have or don't have or what we do or don't do, but just because it's who you've made us to be. And Lord, help us this week to see others as equally made as your image as we are. Give us the courage to go after those, those unhelpful attitudes and thoughts that encourage us to see people otherwise. May we have your eyes to see people as you see them and your heart to love people as you love them. We pray this in Jesus' name.